Well, good morning. As you've already heard, the men are up at the men's retreat this weekend, um, and so I'm filling in for Pastor Kevin. I, I heard of something really neat that happened up at the men's retreat. Uh, it was Kevin's birthday on Friday, and when we go up to the men's retreat, it's a group with other groups coming up there and meet at Twin Peaks, and so they asked Kevin to do the prayer for the meal with, with 400 other men there, and and uh, it, was, it was really just a trick to get them up there, and then everybody in unison sang them happy birthday up at the retreat. So that was, uh, I thought that was, that was pretty neat, reminding him how old he is, um, which I enjoy because he likes to remind me how old I am. So uh, it, is, uh, it is my pleasure to be here with you this morning, um, take some time to worship our Lord by studying his word. If you would open your Bibles to Ephesians we are going to be looking at Ephesians 4, verses 31 through 5-2. Ephesians 4, verses 31 through 5-2, where God's Word speaks to us and says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we remember those 50 or 60 men up on the mountain right now and taking time to focus their hearts on you. And we ask, Lord, as they are closing out their time together now, that you would lift their hearts to you, that you would continue to do supernatural work, drawing them closer to you and conforming them more to the image of your Son. Likewise, Lord, we come before you now and ask the same thing for us, that you would be at work in us. That for those in this room who are struggling with bitterness and anger, driven by selfishness, that you would free us from the tyranny of sin. Through your Spirit, you would allow us to see your Son his great love for us and draw us to a place of loving others as we have been loved. This can only be done supernaturally by the work of your Spirit, so we ask that you would do that in us, that you would guide my words and open our hearts to your truth once again. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I I remember years ago... uh, studying this text for a message, and as I, as I read the text over and over again, something jumped out at me, uh, and, and it was powerful, and it was right at the beginning of, of chapter 5 where it says, therefore, be imitators of God. You think about that for a second. Paul commands each believer in Christ to be an imitator of God. And it does easily make sense. We were created to bear the image of God. And and sometimes we hear a phrase like that so often that it kind of becomes white noise to us. We We don't think too much about it. But when you take a step back from hearing this phrase repeated in Scripture and really think about it, this is an outrageous command. Uh, this, this is enormous to, to try to follow after. And, and you think about it, if I commanded you, and really commanded you under the authority of God, as if God now is coming down and telling you, I want you to be an imitator of Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, I want you to be an imitator of Albert Einstein. 
I want you to imitate somebody like Carrie Underwood. You, you might hear those words and, and think them in and drink them in and think, well, that's ridiculous. It's absurd. Why? Because although you may be able to dribble a basketball this morning, that does not mean that you could be a high-caliber athlete. Just because you've, you know, finished a geometry class sometime in high school, it doesn't mean you can put together creative, mind-boggling mathematical equations that change thought processes and how we interpret the world around us. Just because you can, just because you may have sung in the shower this morning, it doesn't mean you can record that and and make millions of, sell millions of records You see, it's because of our knowledge of people like Kobe Bryant and Albert Einstein and Carrie Underwood. It's it's because of our knowledge of their abilities and their talents. It makes us realize that we cannot adequately imitate them. We would fall far short of imitating them over and over again at every step. But you take a look at chapter 5, verse 1, and Paul is not commanding us to be imitators of someone as trivial as Albert Einstein. He's calling us to be imitators of the supreme sovereign creator of the universe, the one who is all-powerful, the one who is all-knowing, who is all places at all times. That's who he is calling us to imitate And although we can never imitate God's eternal and incomprehensible attributes, they're, they're far beyond us because he's infinite and we are not, he is calling us to imitate those attributes that we share with God. Things like his justice, like his mercy, like his, compa- uh, like his compassion, his goodness. These things God has given us the ability to imitate And we are to imitate them. But, of course, this doesn't bring us any real comfort either, especially when you begin to compare your goodness to that of the goodness of God. When you compare your wisdom and your plan-making that to the plan-making of God. When you compare your compassion and your kindness to God. It brings us to a place of humility. And it causes us to realize that we need God to follow this new covenant command that he's given us in our lives. And this is exactly the type of help that God gives us when we try to follow him, when we seek to be imitators of him. He gives us himself to help us. He gave us his son so that we would have the ability to imitate him. He he gave us his son to die upon the cross and rise again and then His spirit comes down and fills us and empowers us and gives us strength and ability so that we might be able to be conformed into his image in spite of our sin and our shortcomings. You look again at verse 1 and you see the key of this text. He says, therefore be imitators of God. How? How? As beloved children, as dearly beloved children. This is the key to understanding his command to us here this morning. If we don't get that second part of us being his dearly beloved children, we will be paralyzed by fear in looking at the command to imitate him. But when we see the words, oh, I am his child, it gives us hope. We are to reflect him as his child. Uh, We we see that in our own lives on a regular basis. We we see that when we have our own children and and there's a DNA that makes them up. There's, There's these Nucleic amino acids that, that form together as, as a man and a woman come together and have a child, and then that child takes on those characteristics. When Haley was born, my firstborn, it was right around the time of those, uh, 
uh, Austin Power movies, and in one of the movies they had a character called Minnie Me, and, and when Haley was born, when, when she was one, two years old, people used to look at her and be like, oh, she's Minnie D. She, she just looks just like you. She, she just looks like you, and, and that's for good reason. I mean, she's way cuter than I am, but, but it's, it's for good reason because she comes from me. It's how she was formed, and of course she is going to reflect me and look like me. But when you look at the Christian life, this is also true. In Ephesians 1.5, we're told we are adopted into the family of God through the work of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, it says that we were made members of the household of God. And in that, we were also given spiritual DNA. The Holy Spirit was planted into our hearts so that we would walk and talk and reflect God into this world so that we would have the ability to imitate Him, to love what He loves, to speak in the same manner in which He spoke, And to have it come from our hearts, from a spiritually circumcised heart that now says, I don't do this to earn salvation. I do this because I am saved, because I am his child. And therefore, I walk like him. I'm becoming conformed into his image day by day. This takes us to the next point of our text. And that is that Paul is instructing us how to become imitators of God by calling believers to imitate a very specific attribute of God. And that is love. This is critical. This is essential. This is the law of the new covenant. This is what scripture calls us, the, tells us is the, the law of Christ. And that is that we would love. We would love others in the way that we have been loved. And we would reflect that love. He says in verse 32 of chapter 4, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. He says, therefore, be imitators as beloved children and walk in love. He has called us to love one another. And thankfully, God here does not leave the definition of what love is to us. Uh, you, You do... You do this, do this, you should do this. Look on the internet and start pulling up definitions of love from a worldly point of view. I've done this before. I've, I've looked for poems. Man's best efforts to try to poetically put together what is love. And you read them from a Christian's point of view and they just, they just keep falling flat over and over again because the world doesn't really understand what love is to them. It's this sentimental feeling, this affection that I may have for somebody else that's really based on how they make me feel or how lovable they are to me. This is what the world sees as love. Yet God lets us know that is not the type of love we are to imitate, not at all. He wants us to follow the pattern of love that was given to us by Jesus Christ himself. And the first type of love he shows us that we are to pattern our lives after, the first attribute of love that we should be following and imitating is forgiving love. As I read earlier, he says, you should forgive each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. In other words, Paul is pointing out that since God has forgiven us in his deep love for us, we ought to in turn forgive one another. For it is in God himself through Jesus Christ that we find the source of all forgiving love. It is in him that we find out what love and what forgiving love really looks like. God's word tells us of his forgiving love. He tells us that that is the source of all love. 
It is, we love because he has loved us, because he has placed it in our hearts. We know what love looks like through forgiving love because he has shown us the ultimate example of what forgiving love is. And we are to follow that example. We need to pay attention here because the understanding of how God has lovingly forgiven us is the key to understanding how we lovingly forgive others. And it is hard to forgive. It's hard to. Anybody who's lived any form of life for any period of time knows it's hard to forgive. It is our natural inclination to not forgive. I have five kids, so it's easy for me to see the example of it, even in small children who really haven't been hurt all that much. But when a sibling comes along and does something that, that just really gets under their skin and hurts their hearts, their response isn't, it's okay, I love you. It's, I'm over here, and you're going to have to come to me. No, talk to the hand. I don't need you. I don't want you. Just stay away from me. They struggle with it because it's our natural inclination to hold grudges, to respond to sin in a selfish manner. We struggle with it. It's hard for us. We don't want to let go of how other people have hurt us because in our sinful minds, we, we realize we're bad. We understand that. We, we look at ourselves and we go, well, I know I'm flawed. I'm just not as flawed as that guy over there who hurt me yesterday. He's seriously flawed. Like there's a person who needs some help. Even as believers, you know, that, that person just really needs to read more scripture like I do. They just need to try harder like I do. If they tried, if they were more like me, then they wouldn't hurt me like that. How dare they fall short of my image? They don't deserve my forgiveness. We may not talk like that explicitly, but that is how we think. I'll forgive them when they do enough to deserve my forgiveness. When they really wallow at my feet and I can see their broken hardness and I let them just sit there a second in their angst and their pain, then maybe, yeah, then I'll forgive them. Because they've shown me now that they, they've earned it. This is our struggle with the sin in our hearts and, and it is a big problem. Because just as Jesus said in Luke 7, he who is forgiven little loves little. And we don't, if we don't understand how much we've been forgiven, we will love others at a very small rate, at a very human level. But the opposite of that is also equally true, and that is when you truly understand that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. No spiritual, spiritual inclination in your hearts at all. Laying on the ground, your heart in rebellion to God in your deadness with no hope without God in this world. You were held captive by the prince of the power of the air, by Satan himself. In your deadness with your eyes covered and, and Satan's hands over your own hands and willing rebellion to God. By nature, suitable objects of the wrath of God. Get into that deadness. He spoke life through the love of Christ in his great mercy, he said, I want you now to live when you had no hope. And now you walk in unity with him, not just for today, but forevermore. When that happens, when we see ourselves as once walking in rebellion and now walking in the majesty and the holiness of God, we will love others. We will forgive others freely when we truly understand how it is that we have been forgiven. When we come to the reality of our sin and God's forgiveness, it is then when we will begin to freely love others and forgive others as we have been forgiven. How can we not? 
Understanding who we were apart from Christ and knowing what he has done to bring us into a relationship with him is so humbling. It just has to change us. It has to, because that's what, that's what radical things that happen in our lives do. Especially when we see our own folly, it brings us to a place of humility. We've all been there. This is why I think, for the most part, the older a person gets, the more humble they become, because they can look back and be like, oh man, I have made so many mistakes. I've fallen so far short so many times. I remember myself being on a youth retreat years and years ago as, as a youth pastor, and we were up at Kern Valley, and there was this wall climb thing, and I'd never done anything like that, and, and so it was part of our retreat, and everybody's lined up there, and everybody's taking their turns at, the, at this rock wall, climbing wall thing, and, and there's three sides to it. You have your easy side, you have your middle side, and then you have your hard, the, the, the difficult side, those for advanced people, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm, and I'm watching it, and I'm like, yeah, I'll give it a try. Like, I can do this. I can tell them, I'm not going to go over to the easy side, and I'm not going to go to the really hard side because I've never done this before, so I'm not sure what's going to happen. But I'll go to the medium side, and I strap on all the stuff, and I'm watching all the kids just go up this wall and go up. And some of them are struggling, and some of them are doing it you know, pretty well. And I'm just sitting there, and my pride is swelling like, this is going to be so easy. Like, I'm going to get up there faster than any person. Like, I am going to blow everybody. I mean, yeah, I'm out of shape, and I only have one leg that works well, and, and, but I'm an athlete. I could do this. Like, this looks easy. Look at them. Like, look at the 14-year-old girl. She's just scrambling up, and I'm going to go way faster than her. And then it's my turn. And, and again, like I said, I really am, like, thinking, yes. Like, I'm totally going to nail this. And I just go up and I jam, climb up, grab onto the wall and, and I get going. And, and within seconds, I'm realizing instantaneously, this is way harder than I thought it was going to be. Like, this is really, really, really hard. And I'm pulling and I'm pushing with my legs and I'm trying to think, what did that guy say? Like, don't pull, push with your legs more, stay close to the wall. And I'm trying and I'm sweating and I'm starting to breathe heavy and I'm working hard. And I'm realizing, I don't think I'm getting very far. And, and the kids are starting to encourage me with that like embarrassment in their voice. And I'm realizing, I don't think I'm doing very well at all. And I'm thinking, I, I can't, I just can't, I can't go any further. And somebody says, well, let me take a picture of you for your wife so she could see. And to get at an angle to make it look like I had gotten any distance at all, the person had to literally lay on the ground because as I looked back at them, I was like maybe three feet off the ground. That was it. I'm like looking down. I didn't have to climb down. I just, just jump. I'm done. Like, I'm good. And I was, I was humiliated, but I was humbled by the situation. And, and, and that, it's those types of situations that cause us as we get older and older to interact with life in a different way. And at a, at an infinitely higher level. That's how we should be as Christians when we see others sin. There should be no righteous indignation alive in us when we honestly take a look at our own sin. Others may be at different levels of corruption, but we are corrupt apart from the grace of God. Without hope, without God in this world, separated from him with an eternity of death awaiting us. That's how we all once walked, according to our own sinful inclinations. And when we embrace that reality, I mean really, really embrace it, the gospel does a powerful work in our hearts. It reminds us the depths of our sin. It reminds us the heights of God's love for us. And it brings us to a place of forgiving love, of truly loving others with forgiveness in our hearts. And it doesn't stop there. Because there's another characteristic of Christ-like love. It's not just forgiving, it's also sacrificial. This is the next thing we see about imitating godly love. 
is that it not only forgives, it also sacrifices everything for those around us. In verse 2, he says, And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. How? As an offering, as a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. The picture is clear. He gave himself up by death. He laid down his life for us. This is what imitating God looks like in walking in his love. It is forgiving, but it is also sacrificial. As we look at the text, I see two different aspects of sacrificial love as well. The first aspect of it that I see is what I call like ground level type of love, like like boots on the ground every day moving through life type of love. We see that in verse 31 where he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. That you there is a plural you, put away from you all, all of you, let it be put away from you with all malice. This is a a picture of practical love, of sacrificial love, where it stops living for ourselves and it starts living for others. Where we walk into a room and we stop saying, well, here I am, serve me, and we walk into a room and say, there you are, let me serve you. I get that because when you look at words like bitterness, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander, and how those two are to be put away from you, where do those come from? They come from a heart of selfishness. We're bitter towards others because they don't live up to our demands. We're angry towards others because they haven't loved us in the way that we feel like we deserve to be loved. We, we slander them because we want to push them down so that we would be exalted in our greatness. We don't serve others. We serve ourselves through grudges, through bitterness, through anger. We live for ourselves. And then we justify it. As other believers come and they try to encourage us to to come back to a place of imitating Christ. Forgive them. Lay down yourself to, to serve them. And our response is, well, you just don't understand. You don't understand how I have been hurt. If you understood how I have been hurt, you would walk away and be like, you know what, just stay in your anger. You're right. We continue to serve ourselves and we imitate the world rather than Christ. The response instead should be to live for others, to live lives of selflessness rather than selfishness. Again, patterning our, li- patterning our lives after Jesus Christ himself. We see this in Philippians 2, which was originally going to be my text this morning, but I'm going to read from it anyway, where he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. This is the ground level of love every day. It it takes us from a place of not only forgiving others, but serving others. And not just serving others, serving others with a heart that says, you're worthy of my service. You're worthy of my service. I'm not just doing it because I'm so great. I'm doing it because he's so great and you're worthy of it. You deserve me to lay down my life for you. This is what love does. It esteems others. It builds others up. And it reflects Christ. Have you ever come across people who are like this Aren't they, just, aren't they just super encouraging to be around? We're, we're just, the pattern of their lives over and over again is, how can I help you? How can I serve you? What can I do for you? You know, I, I'm, I'm hearing you talk and I'm hearing pain in your voice. Can I pray for you? I 
love that. I do not do that enough for others. And I love it when somebody just interrupts me and says, I can feel what you're going through. Can I just pray for you? Can I just serve you right now? In any way possible, can I serve you? How can I help you? How can I love you more? How can I be an imitator of Christ to you more and more? This isn't to say these people are blind to other sin, because they're not. They don't walk around saying, well, everybody's good. Deep down in their hearts, everybody's a good person. No, I see your sin. I see your struggle with sin. I just love you in in spite of all of that. I want to serve you in the face of all of that because that's what Christ has done for me. This is a walk that imitates the walk of Christ. We have forgiving love. We have sacrificial love. We also have supernatural love. This is the aspect of sacrificial love when it's done from from a place that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is supernatural. This is really the foundation of forgiving love and serving and sacrificial love because it comes from God at work in our hearts. A love that is unconditional, a love that is unyielding, that doesn't get swayed by how things are going in the moment. And that is how our love is. We struggle with it. I struggle with it. Our love is unstable. It's fickle. It's weak sometimes. Sometimes friends can come and go with the slightest argument. Our affections for even our family members sometimes can fluctuate in terms of how well our day goes. I I say this all the time. Uh, Most everybody in this room knows that my wife is sick, and I say this all the time. When she's well, everything seems to go well. It just goes better. Why is that? Because when she's not well, I don't feel right. And so I don't love my kids the way that they should be loved. When she's not well, I'm tense and I'm not sleeping as much and and I'm carrying this weight of emotion of watching what's going on every day and and I walk out of our room and one of our kids has done something to another kid and I I don't turn around and respond with kindness and graciousness. I respond with anger. My affection is for my own child now has waned in some way as a result of their sin in front of me and their them impeding my my joy in life that is already struggling because of what's going on in the other room. And so I just respond in anger. And I yell. And I get frustrated. And my love seems to wane at that moment because of just what's happening in my day. There's a foundation that we need. What we need is a love that is unwavering, that's secure, that's unconditional. It's a love that's like God's love for us. Listen to Paul's understanding of God's love in Romans 8.35. We all know it well, but I'm going to read it again anyway. Where he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword And then he goes on in verse 37 and he says, Yet in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you feel that this morning? Do you feel an unwavering, unyielding love that is moment by moment poured into your hearts? You fall, you struggle, you say the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing, and God's love just keeps coming like an unending wave washing over you, bringing you peace and comfort. This is how he has loved us. Moreover, this is how our love should be for others. 
Can you say deep in your heart to those around you in this room that the love of God so permeates you that nothing can separate you from loving them? Nothing. If you can't, Paul is admonishing you this morning to be imitators of God as beloved children and to love others, to love them practically, to love them unconditionally, just as God has loved you. Love them in that way. You have been loved far beyond where your imagination can take you. Drink it in. And pour it out to others. I remember a few years ago reading the book Unbroken about Louis Zamperini. I don't know if you've read it or seen the movie. It's a beautiful book. It's a powerful book. Uh, The movie, if you haven't read the book, the movie really sells it short of what is the best part of his life. And and if you don't know much about his life, he, he lived back in the 30s and 40s. He was an Olympian who entered into war and and his plane crashed over the Pacific Ocean. He spent like a month and a half just floating on the ocean. He got captured by the Japanese. And then for the next years, the next two years, he was just tortured relentlessly. Uh, The movie does not do justice to how uncomfortable it was to read the words of how he was tortured. And, and, and I could just say it to you right now, and you could kind of sympathize, like, ah, I know, you know, to be in pain and stuff like that. It, it's hard to wrap my brain around day after day, week after week, month after month, for two straight years of just torture, unending torture. And he never knew. He never knew if it was going to come to an end or not. And, and having this one man who eventually just... Because he was, a, he was famous and because he, would put, he was put in a prison camp um, for people who were, not, who were registered as dead so that the Japanese could treat the prisoners any way they wanted. And there was this one guy in that camp who just knew he was famous and he called him his, his number one prisoner and he just every day would search him out and beat him relentlessly. Day after day after day after day for two years, this just went on and on. And then the war ends, and he goes back home, and, and it's the story of triumph, of the, the human will overcoming all odds to just keep living through starvation and torture. But what the movie doesn't tell you is him getting back home and getting just sucked into to alcoholism and, and, and just tr- his family, both physically and, and emotionally, in terrifying ways because he was just in pain. So he just keep drinking alcohol and more alcohol just to try to get rid of his nightmares and, and all of the, the post-traumatic stress syndrome that he was struggling with. And until one night, he woke up as he was strangling his wife to death because he was having a dream that he was, he was strangling that captor. And just when he thought, I need to get away from everybody, his wife invited him to a Billy Graham crusade and God captured his heart. And the nightmares went away. The love of God flooded his heart and his life was changed so dramatically that years later, he went back to Japan and he embraced his own captors. The one guy who hated him the most, that afflicted him the most, would not meet with him even though Louis pursued this man to embrace him and not just embrace his captors, he served them. There's pictures of him like serving meals to the people who used to beat him day in and day out. Why would he do such a thing? Not because he's just a good guy. Because he was loved by a great God who brought him to a place of forgiveness, of forgiving love, of sacrificial love. Love. The place we should walk in every day. And let me just say quickly, I know this is not easy. I do not stand up here and say, just go home and do it. Like, what's a big deal? Just go and do it. Just, you know, there's people who probably hurt you in this church. Just let it go. Bygones be bygones. No big deal. I'm not saying that I'm not marginalizing anybody's pain or difficulty. I'm saying do it anyway. In the same way that Christ has loved you, love others. 
You may get hurt. You may be rejected. You may be even taken advantage of again and again. And Christ is calling you to love anyway, to remember what he has done for you and love others in that same way for, your, for his glory and for your good. This is what Jesus' own words are to us this morning in John 15 at verse 8. He says, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Abide in his love. And here's the critical point for us, that these, thing, or these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full, overflowing. God has called you to be imitators of him. He has called you to love the unlovable day after day and to keep doing it, not because he wants you to be tortured, because he's asking you to do it, because he wants the best for you. He wants the very best for you to keep opening your heart and embracing those around you, to show them the same love that you have been shown, to glorify his name and to make your joy full as you do. As I close, the real question becomes, we may want to become imitators of God. We may want to love others practically and unconditionally, but can we? And the obvious answer is yes, if we look to God and we rely upon him. If we trust in our own ability to check off the six check boxes of love in your life towards others, you will fail miserably. But if you walk in dependency upon the Holy Spirit, you will succeed because he is an infinite God at work in you in infinite ways. Depend on him, and he will supply all that you need. In saying that, there are three things that I want to let us all contemplate in God's call to imitate himself by loving others, to make the possibility of loving others a reality. The first one is an obvious one. The first thing you need is for Jesus Christ to become your Lord and Savior. The reason is if you do not have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you do not have his Holy Spirit as your helper. And although it is true that God's word says that you can endure anything, you can overcome anything through Christ who strengthens you, it is also equally true that Jesus told us in John fifteen five that apart from me, you can do nothing to become imitators of God and to love others with forgiveness, to love others sacrificially, to love others unconditionally. You don't need self-help books. You don't need check boxes. What you need is a savior. You need him. You need to see him. You need to feel him. You need to have him enter into your life in such a dramatic way that everything about you is now changed. The second thing you need after needing Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to get to know Jesus Christ and to spend time with him. To imitate or to be an imitator of God in the Greek there, it is mimitos. It's where we get the word mimic. To to love others as you have been loved, you, get to, you need to get to know who Christ is. To be able to, to follow after him, you need to spend time with him. Again, we experience that all the time. We spend time with people and, and we start to act like him. And maybe you had a best friend growing up and before you met them, you, know, you kind of walked in one type of gate and after you met him, you walked in a different type of gate. Or, or, or for us and our family, I... I sometimes have a Midwestern accent. I moved away from Michigan when I was four. But obviously I spent a lot of time with my mom and she grew up in Michigan. So then I have these, I say these words that my kids make fun of me. I don't say pen, I say pin 
because I'm from the Midwest. I say phenomenal. I say mom. And, and, and the more I'm around family members who are still living in Michigan, the more I start talking like that. The more time I spend with, even my wife started, when we first got, got married, she started talking with that, we call it Carrie's accent, her Midwest accent, because the more time she, we spent with each other, the more she would start to mimic how I talked. And, and this is what we need from Christ. What we need is to spend time with him to get to know him better so that as we spend more time with him by reading his word, by praying to him, by hearing his voice, we will respond by loving others in the same way that we practically are being loved day by day. We need Christ as our savior. We need to spend time with him. We also need each other. I need you and you need me. We need each other. Every day we, we walk this fine line in life between what we believe and how we live. We make professions of faith all the time. We will sit here and we will hear these words and we will say, yes, love as I have been loved. And then we walk out the doors and it's like, how do I do it though? Where do I go now? How, do, how is my life actually going to follow in step with my words? How do I live every day? And to do that, God has given you a gift. It's this church. And church not being the building that we're sitting in right here. It's just an auditorium. The church is the people. God has given us a gift in this body of believers as we struggle, we stumble through life. The more isolated you are from each other, the more you will struggle. Have you ever had that in your marriage issues where you isolate yourselves and then the problems become enormous but then you get around other believers and they encourage you and you realize you know, I'm walking this struggle with that guy or that girl and, and, you know, they're praying for me and I feel stronger now. I, I feel like it, this isn't the end of the world anymore as I rub against the shoulders of the believers around me and spend more time in fellowship and, and praying with them and studying God's word with them and just talking about life and, and reminding each other of the greatness of, of our Savior, it just, the weight becomes easier, more manageable. It's that way for a reason. God didn't create you to walk in the strength of your own independence. He created you to walk in relationship with others so that your faith would be encouraged, so that your Walk would be encouraged so that you would find strength as others bear your burdens with you in fellowship, in community. This is part of the reason why we have ministries. It's not just to give you something to do in the church. It's so that you will do it with others. So that you'll make mistakes and stumble and fall and things will get messed. And, and not everything will go just as smoothly as it possibly can be. It's so that you can stumble with each other and pick each other up and keep loving one another and encouraging one another. This is why we have women's ministry and men's ministry and children's ministry and youth ministry. Why we reach out to the homeless. Why we reach out to other nations to proclaim the gospel. It's not just, it's not just about the final it's about linking arms with another and saying, yeah, let's do this together and encourage one another as we do. This is why we started community groups. And I would encourage you again, if you're not in a community group, sign up. Link arms with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ so that your faith would be encouraged, so that your life would be encouraged, so that you can love one another through the good times and the bad times so that you could truly weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. This is what community groups do. 
This is what they're designed for so that at the end we can sing together with one voice the glories of our God and Father through Christ Jesus, our Savior. May we as believers find the gift of this church and embrace it so that we can grow with one another and find security as we point one another to Christ. And by doing it, we will bring him glory and ourselves joy. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, again this morning, humbled. Humbled by your great grace. By your love that has covered a multitude of sins. By your love that said, I will send my son to this world in order that they might see what love is. And we thank you. Father, I ask that you would do a work in our hearts for those who do not know you. Would you, by your mercy, give them life this morning? Draw them into a relationship with you. For those who do know you, Lord, cause us to walk more closely with you that we might mimic you in forgiving and sacrificial and unconditional love that we might become imitators of you and bring glory to your name. May we as believers this morning, Father, link arms with one another because we need each other. We need you but you have given us the gift of others and we need each other. Lord, and help us not to shy away from relationships, to cower in our little corners, paralyzed by the fear of what others may think. Lord, give us a boldness, empower us by your spirit that we might reach out in love towards others so that we would grow, so that they would grow. Do all of this, Lord, for your glory. Do a work so that this church would be an imitator of you. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.